Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In To Fulfill These Rights, Political Struggle Over Affirmative Action and Open Admissions, published by Columbia University Press in 2019, Amaka Okachuku offers a historically informed sociological account of the struggles over affirmative action and open admissions in higher education. Through case studies of policy retrenchment at public universities, she documents the protracted but not always successful rollback of inclusive policies in the context of shifting race and class politics. To Fulfill These Rights provides a new analysis of the politics of higher education, centering the changing understanding and practices of race and class in the United States. Amaka is an assistant professor of sociology at George Mason University. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. And I should also add that Mark and I were together in graduate school at NYU, and I'm especially glad to be interviewing her today. Welcome, Amaka. Thank you for having me, Zalman. Absolutely. It's wonderful uh, to have you here. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Of course. Um, I think two things led me to um, begin this project. So first, um, I think it's important to mention that this uh, book started off as a dissertation um, at NYU Sociology. And in New York, I was pretty active in organizations, um, left leftist organizations um, in the city. And one organization that I um, was pretty active in was the Brecht Forum, which was a sort of leftist Marxist uh, political space um, in New York. And through my um, time there, as well as other organizations, I kept running across um, essentially a cohort of activists that were really impressive to me. Um, They were really, they had really sharp political analyses and they all seemed to know each other. They all seemed to have gone to college with each other. And it was interesting to me. And I found out that they were all members of an organization called Student Liberation Action Movement, um, which was active in the CUNY system in the 90s and the early 2000s. And so I thought this was an interesting story here that all of these people had kind of gone to college um, with each other and were all active in various organizations and movements in the city. And so through my conversations and just interaction with folks from SLAM, I learned that they had actually done work to document what it is that they were doing at the time. Um, they had donated uh, over 20 boxes of materials to um, NYU's Tamamet Library, um, and no one had really done anything with, with those materials. Um, and there was also a sort of a grassroots um, effort among each other to document um, their stories through oral histories. And so I thought this would be really interesting for me to you know, d- dive into to this collection. Um, and I have personal relationships with a lot of these people. So it'd be a really great opportunity for me to interview folks as well. And so I wanted to talk or sort of explore SLAM um, in more depth. I found out that they were connected to student organizers um, at UC Berkeley um, who were organizing uh, against affirmative action retrenchment at the same time that CUNY students were organizing against open admissions retrenchment, and I thought that was an interesting story. And so I went to my committee with this (laughs) project, and they forced me to expand the project, which I think was a good 
thing to do. Um, but I was really interested in in researching organizing of young people. And so that is one really key thing that that brought me to this project. And, you know, of course, it's there's evidence of that in the book. I think the second thing, um, which I'll be more brief about, is that I grew up in California. I was a young person when Proposition 209 was passed. I remember um, the organizing that was happening around that time. I remember being in conversation with friends of mine who were Black, who were National Merit Scholars, who said that they weren't going to apply to UC Berkeley because they didn't feel welcome there. They didn't feel like it was a hospitable environment for them. Um, and so I remember growing up and, and, and hearing about this and experience the, experiencing it and having it shape my political consciousness growing up in California. And so um, I would say that those two um, experiences really informed me coming to this project um, as a researcher, right. That's that's really really interesting. Um, to to set the stage a bit for for our discussion, could you tell us a little bit about the rate of attainment of bachelor degrees for uh, white people versus black people today in the U.S.? Are, is there a big difference in those rates, and and, and what does that look like? Um, I wish I could provide a more satisfactory answer. I'm not a good, uh, I'm not, my memory is never good with numbers, so I'll just say that. Um, but for me, it was interesting to explore these questions of educational access at both a working class institution like CUNY, as well as um, elite public institutions like Michigan, Berkeley, University of Texas, Austin, because I felt that a lot of the conversation around educational access and in particular affirmative action really centered on elite institutions. These are institutions that the majority of Americans of any race, ethnic group, class background are not going to have um, you know, access to, right? This is a very small number of people that are able to gain admission into these institutions and gain admission into the kinds of elite networks that, um, you know, uh, are related to, you know, people in various power positions in this country. And so it was interesting for me to think about affirmative action and these elite institutions in relationship to an institution like CUNY, which does a lot of work in um, educating the working class, um, because of that, there is a lot of positive statistical um, data available on, um, you know, the movement of people into middle class after getting a CUNY degree um, in terms of class mobility. And so I thought that was a really interesting um, connection there to think about the, the two policies in relationship to each other and to think about um, thus the success of both of the policies, but also the kinds of coordinated retrenchment and a lot of the similarities that you see in both cases, as well as the involvement of various organizations that were active in both cases. So that's that's what is more interesting to me about the, the story. Sure. I, I totally hear that. Uh, two two quick things. First of all, for people that are just not familiar with this, CUNY refers to the City University of New York, right? The, the, the city... Uh, College uh, university system, yes. um, and also I'm uh, I am completely there with you in terms of not being a numbers person, um, I, I, and because of that, uh, when I when I prepared uh, for when I prepare for interviews uh, that deal with you know mention numbers, I try to write them down because I am terrible at remembering this kind of thing, and one number that jumped out at me from your book was that it's uh, you said that forty three percent of um uh um 
of, of, of white people were receiving uh, bachelor degrees today versus only 23% of blacks. So that the, the numbers, although as, as I'm sure you, you, you would agree, uh, you know, hardly tell the, the whole story, but they give a little um, uh, window into just how stark the, 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 the gap in college attainment between uh, people of different racial uh, backgrounds in America, even today, still Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Thank you for um, you know finding that statistic. It's it's always so interesting because I you know I mentioned I'm not a numbers person, but I think anyone that's written a book will also recognize that you know even though you've written it, you you kind of have to return back to the material, and it's not the same as being in it <laughs> when you're writing it, right? So yeah. So thank you for mentioning oh. that. Uh, of course, I, I I mean I'm shocked sometimes when people mention things from my book and I'm like I wrote that <laughs> like you know you write it you're in it afterwards of course it's hard to remember especially numbers but I just I wanted just to put out that number because it seemed you know really to highlight uh, as you do so well in the book the the really stark uh, difference that uh, or, or or gulf that still persists in college attainment. Um, uh, speaking of a college attainment, again, just to kind of set the stage here a bit, if you could speak a little bit about for-profit uh, colleges, when people are thinking about, you know, what colleges, um, you know, Americans are, are attending, um, there is a whole system of for-profit uh, colleges. And I'm uh, wondering if you could speak a drop about how many of the people or, or the, the extent to which um, Black people are much more involved uh, in, um, you know, attending for-profit co- for colleges versus, uh, you know, regular not-for-profit colleges. Right. Um, I, of course, I don't have the statistical information, but I do know that um, Black people and generally um, lower-income people um, are, mo- are more vulnerable to getting um, caught up in the for-profit college enterprise, which is tends to be a very exploitative enterprise. Um, when we talk about the amount of student debt that we hold as a nation, a large percentage of that debt comes from um, people who have attended for-profit colleges and have to take out loans for that um, experience. Um, I would certainly suggest Trustee McMillan Cotton's um, um, book, um, which really deals with for-profit colleges in a really um, detailed and and nuanced manner, um, because that's not my expertise. But I do think that it is important to think about um, the field of higher education as a whole and the many ways in which people are being um, disadvantaged and exploited through this process. Um, And for-profit colleges is certainly a a huge area where people are being um, exploited um, and then, you know, most people not even leaving with degrees to show for it, but just a lot of debt. Um, so that's certainly a, a major space of, of inequality and exploitation in the present day. Right, right. And and so basically the upshot is that uh, it would be much better for, for the Ameri- American society in general and for the, the individual people involved if they were able to attend a, a, a sort of regular "Quote unquote," for a not-for-profit uh, college or university like the public, uh, um, uh, um, the the public institu- uh, um, educational institutions like the uh, CUNY, the City University of New York, or the college systems in California or other states. Um, so, speaking of of that, uh, this brings us to the issue of affirmative action and open admissions. And um, your book, of course, looks at great detail at both of these. 
um, uh, these policies. Uh, could you tell us just again to, to, to get us started here, how you define affirmative action? Exactly kind of what are we talking about when we're talking about affirmative action policies? Right. Affirmative action is actually a very big category and it's generally policies and programs um, that are extended to historically excluded um, groups of people um, in higher education and in employment. Um, I focused on higher education and I specifically focused on um, admissions to universities. Now, um, you know, people have this understanding that quotas are the, the primary way that affirmative action functions in this country, and that is incorrect. Um, quotas have been illegal since 1978. Um, institutions are very wary of being legally vulnerable <laughs> and legally um, targeted. And so institutions do not um, use uh, quotas, which includes grid systems, point systems, um, separate committees to admit students, those sorts of things. Those efforts are not um, used. Um, the primary means um, by which affirmative action is employed in, um, in admissions is through a holistic consideration of uh, an applicant's uh, whole file, right? And so it would be one factor of many factors, right? That is a, a legal sort of a, a definition, and that is also how it functions um, in universities in this country. I think it's really important to understand um, that affirmative action primarily functions at selective elite institutions, right? So that these are institutions in which a small percentage of, of those who apply are admitted. Um, most universities thus in this country do not employ affirmative action because they do not have to. Most institutions are not selective and most institutions are not elite. Um, and so that is how I, I sort of look to affirmative action, but it can also include programs um, summer bridge programs. It can in include programs that are um, aimed at preparing uh, students of color for uh, graduate school, um, for professional school. Um, it's a very large container. But when most people talk about affirmative action, they're talking about the use of it in university admissions. Right, right. Thank you for that, that those clarifications. Um, and then also, if you could uh, describe a little bit what you mean by op um, the open admissions policies. What, what, what exactly does that refer right. to? Right. So open admissions, or it's, uh, it's also called open enrollment, is the policy that most would be familiar with when they think of a community college, right? Um, having a high school diploma and perhaps minimal other qualifications that would allow someone admittance into um, an institution. Um, I focus on the City University of New York and their implementation of open admissions because it is the largest um, university system that has ever employed um, open admissions. And that open admissions uh, applied to both community colleges and the senior colleges, the four-year colleges. And so in that way, um, it's a very important um, you know, experiment to look to in that regard. And it had a really huge impact and really opening up education um, in the city of New York. And like I said, really played an important role in the class mobility of working class people um, in the city. And so um, in this case, City University of New York is a working class institution. Um, it is a more accessible institution, right? So it's not an elite or selective place. And I was interested in how um, open enrollment worked in the four-year colleges and more specifically the struggle over that policy over the years from the 60s on. Um, 
And so these are very different policies that function in different institutions, but are different kinds of institutions, but they both um, are related to access. Right. Right. And um, you kind of touched on this before when you were talking about how the whole issue of affirmative action in higher education really only relates to a very, very small number of academic institutions. Um, and uh, because, the, as you said, it's sort of elite or, or highly uh, selective uh, institutions, whereas most uh, um, a- a- academic uh, institutions and certainly um, uh, community colleges tend to have fairly um, uh, fairly open uh, policies to begin with. So this, you know, the issue of affirmative action is not really relevant. Um, I'm curious how uh, radical you feel affirmative action and open admissions programs are. In other words, to what extent? Um, uh, can these programs fundamentally restructure the political uh, um, economic system that we live under if they were um, you know operating at the, the the highest level so to speak the the, the most expansive view of these programs right. that's a really good question um, and it's something that I struggled with when I was um, entering this project I think that um, these policies you know, considering, I don't see them as the most radical problems, right? Or sorry, the most radical solutions. I don't think that affirmative action or open admissions can solve the, the social problems, can deal with um, the problems that advanced capitalism has has placed us in, right? I do see them as creating an, op- a, a, an open path for some, though. You know, it is a space of access and a space of class mobility um, for for some the people that are able to access it, right? Um, but I don't see it. As, I don't see either policy as revolutionary in the sense that um, that they by themselves can transform a society so shaped by um, exploitation and and various forms of violence and oppression. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not <laughs> important, right? But the, but the thing is, is that they they function within a constrained context, right? And so. Um, that is the problem. But um, I do see them as progressive. I see them as progressive policies. I do think that thinking about threats to, to these policies are are important um, for a variety of, of reasons. But I think one is because a lot of what we see in this sort of uh, field can also be applied in other fields, right, in regards to the conservative strategies and tactics and forms of retrenchment. Um, we know that a lot of these actors um, are not just functioning in a space of, of education. They're functioning in other spaces as well. And so I think from a, a perspective of, of movements and strategy, I think there's a lot to learn um, from these cases. Right. So it's almost like these uh, uh, programs and efforts of uh, affirmative action and, op- and um, open admissions are almost like a litmus test to give us a sense of people who are who are pro or people who are anti gives us a sense of how they feel about a lot of other parts of American society and institutional yes, life. and what they do in these areas, right? So it is, of course, how people feel, but more so, you know, what are the tactics and strategies being developed in, in this arena um, to, to stop, to retrench these policies, and how might they be applied in other spaces? I think one of the things that also brought me to this project, um, it's just relevant, so I'm going to talk about 
So, so briefly, one of the things that um, also when I was sort of developing this project, one of the things that I found interesting is that m most of the literature that I could find on affirmative action and, and in particular sort of uh, political um, and, and social science literature related to affirmative action was so focused on this sort of question or this positioning in the debate, right? Yes or no? Do we support affirmative action? Do we reject affirmative action? What are the pros and cons? And for me, that was very unhelpful and very, um, it wasn't interesting to me. That was an interesting question. I saw these, these debates and these public struggles over um, these policies as sites in a political field. And I was more interested in struggle over these policies and right, the strategies, the tactics, the framing um, how people are developing and employing ideas about race and racism through these struggles um, rather than pro or con, right? I wasn't really interested in that um, dynamic. I'm, of course, in support of policies, but I found that actually to be very uninteresting. Uh, and so <laughs> I wanted to explore this topic in a different kind of way than I had seen before. Right, right. I, I totally hear that. Um, you mentioned the the year either you you you're with me yes can you yeah. hear me yes yeah we're good okay uh uh marco polo okay um where you mentioned the year 1978 uh uh before and i believe you're referring to the supreme court case uh of a regent of the university of california versus uh baki and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that case and how that shaped the 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 realities and the discourse around um, around affirmative action. Right. So briefly, um, the Baki case is a really significant case because to this day it is probably the boundaries and the limits around affirmative action, affirmative action have legally been most defined by the Supreme Court case. Um, this was a case in which um, Alan Baki, he was applying to medical school. Um, in the 1970s, um, medical school admissions um, were very, um, there was age discrimination that was definitely at play um, in uh, medical school admissions. Alan Baki had decided that he wanted a second career, so he was older applying to um, medical school. And he applied to a variety of schools and was rejected, uh, I believe, from all of the schools that he applied to. Um, he decided to focus on um, the UC Davis uh, rejection and, of course, assisted by a variety of conservative legal organizations and think tanks. And he sued the institution for um, discrimination. He basically said that his rights had been violated um, under the Equal Protection Clause. And he sued uh, UC Davis Medical School. And what came out of that case um, was, one, that quotas were made illegal. However, the legal rationale of diversity as a state interest was reinforced, right? Which is something that we still hear today. And um, this shaped affirmative action in a variety of ways. One, quotas were outlawed. Quotas um, to help two, people of color, just to be clear. Yes, yes. So quotas um, functioning in the admissions process. So in the Davis, I can't, I'm trying to remember if the Davis case was one in which there were separate, I believe there were separate um, admissions committees to admit black students and um, um, other students, um, white students into uh, the medical school class. And so um, quotas, you know, that that is one way that people talk about quotas, the separate committees. Um, 
it off, you know, also functioned as, you know, we want 10 black students. And so there's 10 seats for black students. Right. And so quotas were eliminated um, at that point. Um, but also the legal rationale um, shifted prior to 1978. A lot of institutions had implemented affirmative action uh, programs as a means of racial redress. Right. This was very um, intentionally aiming to address past and present discrimination. Right. And so affirmative action was developed as a means of racial redress. Uh, the Baki decision eliminated that as a legal rationale. But they said instead, um, the ability to compose diverse classes and a diverse campus culture is legally permissible. Um, and it's a good thing. Right. And this was um, largely based off of the affirmative action plan in place at Harvard at the time. Um, and so after this case, universities across the country went to go revise their programs because they did not want to be legally, uh, they did not want to end up in the court, right? Because these, these court cases are very expensive, um, millions and millions of dollars to, to go to the Supreme Court. So institutions changed their um, affirmative action programs. A lot of what we see now is diversity and reten retention um, programs or, um, you know, diversity, uh, you know, and there's different kinds of languages, but we're all familiar, right? The offices on campus, um, those, uh, most of those programs started off as explicitly affirmative action programs, but the language has been shifted. The procedures have been um, shifted. And so this was a really important case. Another reason why it was important is because there was no majority decision in this case, <laughs> um, which makes it very confusing and which makes um, it sort of not easy, but it, it makes it more available to go to the Supreme Court because cases that go to the Supreme Court are about creating uniformity in the law, having a final decision on something. Um, and so this case was very important for that. The Powell decision or the sort of Powell opinion is what most people take as the decision in that case, but it was a plurality opinion, meaning that there was no majority. And so it was very confusing for um, lots of people, but advantageous for conservatives in their many, 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 many <laughs> lawsuits against universities in various states, various university systems um, and beyond. We are still dealing with, um, uh, lawsuits now. A, a lot of the figure, or Edward Bloom and and his uh, organizing, he is now focused on private institutions. He's moved on from a lot of these public institutions. He's suing Harvard. He's suing Princeton. Um, so, you know, it continues. Right, right. Um, and uh, so, but I, I just want to go back to one thing about the Baki uh, decision that you mentioned, which I think people who are not familiar with this, I, I think might find this very odd. And and tell me if I got the story right. It seems to me that the 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 Powell decision, the, the Supreme Court Justice Powell, his decision in the case uh, was essentially saying that you, you're not allowed to have some kind of affirmative action program to explicitly help black people. But you could have special programs in order to ensure that there's at least some black people on college campuses or university campuses in order, essentially, to help the rest of the students. 
that like we're not really trying to help the black people in America. We're trying to create a sort of positive experience intellectually, socially, creatively for everyone else. And it would be beneficial to kind of sprinkle some yes. black people into that mix. Did I that get is, that right? That is correct, right? So so what comes out of, of this decision and, and continues, if you look at the, the more recent legal decisions, is that um, having a diverse campus is beneficial right it's, it's about providing a uh, cultural exchange and being exposed to various experiences and ideas and the and what for and you know that kind of thing um largely is constructed as benefits for white students di- diverse campuses it's largely constructed as benefits for white students um so yes that is correct the way that you that you stated that is correct and it's something that is rarely questioned um even in the present day when we look at these legal cases and and sort of what the implications of, yes, we should have a few black students, you know, just so that these white students largely from elite backgrounds can say that they have shared space and been in classroom conversations and group projects with black people and and perhaps other people of color. So um, it's very problematic. Right, right. So you talk about in the book how this, um, this decision and, and, and the response to it has really pushed this idea of diversity as opposed to kind of racial equality. Uh, it, there's a real move uh, for diversity. And you talk about how this could translate into kind of shallow tokenism. What do you mean? What do we mean by diversity? And, and what does it mean, shallow tokenism? Right. So I talk about both diversity and colorblindness as these kind of dueling racial logics that are sort of being created and 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 um, debated debated and struggled over in, in political struggle. And diversity is is ever present. This is language that we hear every day um, in many different kinds of contexts. And it often is a sort of shallow, uh, vague terminology, right? I hear people talk about diverse people, diverse ideas, uh, many kinds of things. Um, it's very confusing. A diverse person, which doesn't really exist, right? <laughs> um, these are things that we that we hear frequently, right? And we, we I think we kind of take it for granted. Um, diversity is, you know, generally, of course, we see it as referring to sort of various forms of racial representation, where there are some Black people, some Latino people, some Asian people, some white people, right? Having some sort of racial representation, um, it kind of draws from multiculturalism, culturalism in some ways. Um, but I talk about it in regards to, right, one, what it means to move from racial redress to diversity as sort of compelling rationales for developing these programs. Um, one that addresses racial inequality or at least aims to, to address it, whether it's successful or not, is, is a different kind of question. Um, but one that aims to address racial inequality and one that can actually be co-opted into a variety of causes, um, a variety of places, fields, etc. And so I'm concerned about the ways in which... Um, for example, conservative organizations that are very explicit about rolling back all of the gains of the civil rights movement and any sort of progressive policy would then use um, black or you know brown figures 
as the sort of spokespersons of these kinds of causes, right? For me, that's a form of racial tokenism. You're finding somebody, um, you know, the one person, you know, might be one or two people to sort of be the spokesperson for a particular um, conservative, anti-Black cause, right? Um, And I think that's an extreme example, but we can talk about tokenism in a variety of places, right? Fortune 500, there's, you know, one or two Black people or whatever amount of Black people who are head of these you know, billion dollar organizations. And yet the work that all of these organizations are doing is to extract and disadvantage and exploit and oppress black people across the globe. I don't know if that's something that we really want to see a black person doing that work and, and sort of disenfranchising most black people. Right. And so for me, I think we have to really be critical about these questions around representation and tokenism, right? Taking a step back and, and seeing what is, you know, do we really want to be holding up uh, people of color in positions of power in which they are doing the work of exploitation and oppression and extraction. That is not a world that I want, right? But that is often what we are looking to when we're when we're sort of thinking about diversity, particularly as it relates to positions of power um, and representation. And so I was trying to sort of tease some of that out um, in in these battles over affirmative action and how diversity is a sort of phrasing that can be thus you know, dragged everywhere and, you know, in some ways mean absolutely nothing. Right, right. And speaking of all that, how did you mention about conservative think tanks and their involvement in the the struggle against affirmative action policies? How did um, these conservative think tanks and uh, legal defense organizations use the concept of race to fight against affirmative action through the federal court system in Texas and Michigan? Right. Well, you know, in contrast to diversity, they tend to be fixated on colorblindness. They they were very much clear on drawing from what they considered to be, um, you know, Martin Luther King and sort of civil rights language around colorblindness, which again was around sort of being, ex- you know, explicitly sort of challenging white supremacy in particular ways and not wanting race to be a barrier in, you know, uh, in life. Um, they sort of took this language as a way to construct reverse racism, right? So that white students were being um, disadvantaged and discriminated against because of these policies, that these policies were in fact so, you know, so um, there were so many opportunities for non-whites, right? That it was actually shutting white people out of opportunity. And so this is the kind of logic and um, um, language that was being used in challenging policies um, at University of Michigan, University of Texas, Austin, and University of California. Um, And in many, you know, most cases with, particularly with the ballot initiative and board of trustees um, were pretty successful. The legal cases were less, uh, um, I wouldn't say they were less successful because they actually were successful in many ways, um, but they were less, uh, um, you know, it was more of a slow rollback as opposed to a sort of final decision that has ended affirmative action. Right. Oh, speaking of um, university boards of trustees, what role did they play in the process of moving away from affirmative action in higher education? Yeah, the board of trustees are, are, you know, I think anyone that's interested in higher education should really pay attention to the ways that public institutions in particular um, are run by board of trustees, right? They tend, they're the primary governing body of these institutions and board of trustees have 
all the power in making decisions. And particular, in particular, the um, University of California system and um, the City University of New York system, the Board of Trustees played pivotal, important roles in um, the rollback of these policies. And the UC system, um, affirmative action was first ended by trustee vote before it went to the ballot, um, the ballot box in California. So it played a really important role. It's also important to note that in the past few years, the uh, the regents in the University of California system have actually reversed that decision. However, it does not matter because the ballot supersedes the trustee vote, right? So Prop 209 is still on the books. Um, so that's important to mention. In the CUNY system, um, the board also played an important role in rolling back the policy um, of open admissions. Both of these boards um, featured um, sort of political opportunists that were very much um, interested in building um, greater careers um, as conservative spokespersons. Um, many of these people were connected to conservative think tanks. Um, you know, in the case of California, and I think the case for a lot of board of trustees, a lot of board um, members are appointed as um, sort of political favors by governors, mayors, um, and other political figures, right? So if you donate a lot of money to their campaign, you're able to get a, you know, an appointment to the board of trustees. Um, so I think board of trustees are really important to, to examine when we're, when we're thinking about the way that power functions in these institutions and the way that decision-making um, occurs in these institutions. Right. And you mentioned about the, the ballot propositions. How did conservative opponents of affirmative action mobilize ballot propositions in their effort to roll back affirmative action? Right. Um, the UC case is the first one. And so I find it to be the most interesting because when we look to other states, um, so many of you know, what occurs in those other states also happened in California. It was this experimental place. Um, so in California, the ballot actually was the, the idea of two university professors. And um, they were, well, sorry, one university professor and one PhD. Let me be clear. <laughs> uh, um, you know, because in part, in part, one of the, the resentment of the one that never became a professor, I think, really does function in this. So let me be clear about that. But this, um, the, the wood and custard. And, you know, they both had differing sort of rationales for why they believed that affirmative action was a bad thing. One professor was working at a Cal State University and just completely saw his classrooms change demographics overnight and just didn't really understand what was happening. He was also very frustrated with the embrace of multiculturalism and university curriculum. Um, the other uh, PhD never was able to get a faculty job and was convinced that it was because of affirmative action that he was not able to get a university tenure track appointment. They came together, they studied the Civil Rights Act and other civil rights legislation to model their language and to sort of take language from, and they developed a proposition um, that would ban affirmative action throughout the state. The difficulty was that they didn't have any power, so who cares if they have this proposition. Um, however, years go by and they're able to actually meet political opportunity and, and they're able to get connected um, to uh, 
the governor and get connected to Ward Connerly, who's the governor's uh, uh, appoint one of his appointees to uh, the University uh, Board of Regents in the University of California. And um, it becomes a political wedge issue. Um, so the ballot proposition is passed in 1996. And so much of the sort of development of the campaign is happening um, in 1995 and the end of 1994. And so um, in terms of just relationship building and, and all of that. And so um, through these relationships, they're eventually able to get this proposition on the ballot in California. Essentially, if you have a couple million dollars, you can put whatever ballot you want um, onto the ballot. It really just takes money. Um, and so they're able to get Proposition 209, which they call the California Civil Rights Initiative, onto the ballot. And um, they're pretty successful in passing it. Um, it becomes a political wedge issue, meaning that in this specific case, this was the time in which um, conservatives really did not want Bill Clinton to have a second um, presidential um, run. And so they wanted to get a conservative that people would vote for. And um, the governor of California at the time was a potential pick. Um, he ended up not becoming the nomination, but this was a way to sort of place him on a national um, uh, forum, right, for people would be able to, to look at him. Anyway, all that to say, it was a political wedge issue. It was successful. Affirmative action was banned throughout the state. Ward Connolly gets it in his mind where I can take this to whatever state that has a similar referendum process. And he takes it to many states, including Michigan, which I also talk about. And so the ballot initiative is the most successful um, way into eliminating affirmative action. And many states who have that referendum process were able to then pass similar ballots, such as in the state of Arizona um, and, you know, a variety of other states um, that I've mentioned in the book. So was there sure were, were there any states that had uh, these types of ballot initiatives that um, against affirmative action that failed. Right. Yeah. I talk about this in the um, one of my chapters <laughs> um, and I talk about the failure of um, the ballot in, in Missouri in particular and also Colorado. Um, and there's a variety of things that were happening in, in these places, which prevented these ballots from passing. Um, but I do think that because activists in these areas had the time of watching ballots pass in a variety of other states before getting to their states, they had time to prepare. They could observe what happened in other states, um, and they were able to do some effective organizing on the ground, which really um, shifted the framing of, right, these ballots. And so they failed in, in both of those cases. Timing is also important. Both of um, Ward Connerly aims to pass these anti-affirmative action ballot initiatives at the same time that Barack Obama is running for the first, um, for his, his first four years, which we all remember was a moment of mass um, interest organizing, lots of get out the vote, um, and, and you know, lots of uh, progressive people coming out to vote. And that, I think, also played a role in those not passing. But I talk about it in more detail um, 
in the book. I'll I'll just be, I'll just leave it there for now. Sure, sure. Uh, and you, in the beginning of our conversation, you talked about um, your your interest in doing research on the students that were mobilizing in New York and in California um, uh, to resist anti-affirmative action um, uh, initiatives. Um, how did these student uh, activists on college campuses in New York and California try to resist this uh, uh, this push against affirmative can action? Can you hear me? Yes. Because you, I can't hear you now. Wait, I think, can you? Huh? Wait, I can hear you now. I can hear you now. You went out for a minute. Okay. <laughs> I, did, I did hear the question. I did hear the okay. question. Okay. okay. So, um, you know, one of my most favorite chapters in the book um, deals with student mobilization um, in New York and in California. And that is in part because, uh, as I mentioned before, there were connections between um, the two groups of, of organizers. And I also published an article in City and Community that goes into more depth about this, um, with the CUNY case in particular. Um, so student activists, of course, resisted, right? They didn't take this laying down. Um, in the CUNY case, student organizing um, emerged immediately to to fight against uh, retrenchment. This occurred in a variety of ways. And I think it's important to note that, you know, CUNY has a sort of a robust history of, of organizing on the left. These student organizers were not just students. They were organizers in the city. They were connected to other organizations um, that were, you know, fighting police brutality, um, fighting um, attacks on immigrants, fighting a variety of other issues, right? And so they were connected and were embedded in a, in a network of, of movement activity in New York. And so, which I think is a benefit of their organizing. So they aim to resist open admission through mass mobilization, through, you know, um, civil disobedience, interrupting board of trustee meetings. Um, they did a lot of really important investigative reporting about the connections between um, the conservative think tanks, uh, in particular the Manhattan Institute, and um, the role of people on the board of trustees, um, the role of the, uh, the Schmidt Commission, which was a sort of external um, uh, board of trustees that Giuliani formed to basically uh, force retrenchment. Um, and so they did a really a lot of important reporting related to that, which I think is important because a lot of the um, mainstream media wasn't covering a lot of this. Um, and so they did a lot of work to, to you know, stop the retrenchment. Um, they got together with faculty and sued the Board of Trustees um, once uh, open admissions was first uh, eliminated um, in the CUNY system. Um, so the, a lot of things happened. They were unfortunately unsuccessful, um, but, you know, they did a lot of really important organizing. On the West Coast, um, again, students were involved in a lot of the same things, mass, mobiliza mass mobilization, civil disobedience. Um, students um, were key in developing, um, you know, wider coalitions um, that extended throughout the state that aimed to um, resist the ballot proposition, that aimed to get out the vote so people would vote against the proposition and that kind of thing. Um, but they were also unsuccessful. Um, you know, a lot of this had to do with political opportunity, right? A few, you know, college students were not going to, you know, they, it was going to be difficult for them to uh, defeat a very well-resourced, uh, you know, statewide ballot prop 
you know, proposition. Um, so I don't think it was the student's failure. I think a lot of this had to do with political opportunity. Um, a lot of this had to do with the, the sort of forces that they were facing. Um, but I think the student activist piece was really important for me to highlight um, because, you know, a generation of activists were developed during this time. And a lot of them are still very, very active um, across the country, across the country. So, yeah, that was that's what really drew me to the project. Right. Right. And uh, you you we discussed today and you discuss at, at, you know, at great length in your book about conservative attacks against um, against affirmative action and these inclusive policies. Um, but you also mention in the book that there are liberal opponents of affirmative action. Um, what kind of arguments do liberals put forward in opposition uh, to affirmative action policies? Right. I mean, the main one that I see is uh, class-based affirmative action. It's the idea that, um, you know, affirmative action oriented around race, it's already been attacked. You know, let's just sort of surrender to that and just focus on class, right? Because that is more important. A lot of this is motivated by this idea that um, there's, you know, a huge cohort of Black elites that are just taking up these spaces, right? Um, and so there are liberal, uh, you know, critics of affirmative action. They have played a role in some of these conservative court cases recently, um, particularly with Edward Bloom, um, and the kind of research that they're putting forth to, uh, support the end of, uh, affirmative action as we know it, and to sort of focus on a quote unquote class-based affirmative action, um, which is, again, it's, it's broad and vague. I talk about it in the book and I talk about class-based affirmative action as something that um, could look like a variety of things. And, you know, it's not a one-size-fit-all kind of thing either. Um, but yeah, that is one of the main, uh, you know, critiques, right? It's, well, let's just focus on class. That's more important. All right. And what is, you talked about this a little bit um, uh, earlier in the conversation, but what is the current status of affirmative action and open admissions policies in higher education? Right. So as I mentioned before, um, open admissions uh, mostly functions in community colleges. Um, there isn't a four-year university that uses uh, open admissions in this country. CUNY, you know, like I said, was the great experiment and that they ended that um, in the, you know, 2000, you know, the 1999. Um, and so that's, that's been off the table um, and only functioning in community colleges. Affirmative action, still legal, um, but still being attacked. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that though affirmative action has not been federally eliminated, the different court cases which have legislated the boundaries around affirmative action and which, which have essentially chipped and chipped and chipped away at affirmative action um, mean that a lot of its benefits have been lost, right? Um, I open up the book talking about mobilization among student activists, Black student activists at University of Michigan and how so many of their demands mirrored exactly um, the demands of student activists in 1970 at University of Michigan and how demographically little has changed, right? And so part of why that is, is because, you know, we had these small moments with, you know, very minimal, but small moments of minimal change, right? And then that's all been foreclosed, right? Th that has been rolled back. And so 
in some ways, we're kind of back where we started. Right. But, it's, uh, but it's still legal. Still legal. Uh, right. For now. For now. For now. <laughs> right. All right. Um, and um, uh, again, you all touched on this a bit in the uh, earlier in the conversation, but uh, I, I'm curious to hear what you feel the study of the struggle over affirmative action uh, in, in higher education tells us about the broader issue of race relations in America today? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that I was really interested in using this as a case to kind of explore the racial landscape um, in this country and in thinking about the different ways that we understand race and how race is being employed in various spaces. This is still a country that has um, entrenched racial inequality. Um, this is this is the I mean, we know this. This is not something that we really have to debate over in 2021. Um, our last year has shown us this, both in regards to mobilizations over that really began around you know George Floyd being killed um, by the police, but really extended right beyond that. Um, but also looking at the uh, the pandemic and the sort of racial impacts and implications of that as well, right? So we know that this is a country that is, experiences deep and entrenched racial inequality. And I think for me, I was I was really interested in the ways in which this mapped onto the space of opportunity, right? Higher education. This is something that you know almost every group can agree is something that um, opens up the world in particular ways, right? And so I was interested in the space of education and in this space where, um, you know, class mobility um, and various ideas about the quote unquote American dream sort of live on. Right. How is race and racial inequality showing up in this space? And I think that struggles over affirmative action as well as open admissions um, show us that there's still opportunity hoarding happening um, in this space. Um, It shows us that. Racial inequality has shaped ideas around merit and around who we see as um, worthy of, you know, accessing higher education. Um, and, you know, I was I forgot I forgot who I was talking to about this, even though I say this all the time. You know, I, I can't say that I ended the book very optimistically. And that just has to do that just has to do with our particular social reality, to be honest, you know. Um, I didn't feel optimistic when I ended the book. Um, so much of how I understand affirmative action is that we don't have to eliminate it for us to see the impact of these attacks on these policies. Um, so, so yeah, it's not a rosy picture. Um, but I do think that, right, things are worthy to, to struggle over. And I think education is one of those spaces. So hopefully this book can inform people um, who are interested in these kinds of questions, who are interested to to see a, a historical, a, you know, a longer take. This is not just about what happened in regards to Proposition 209 in 1996 in California. We can actually start 50 years before and, and think more critically about how um, access to, to higher education is connected to mobilization, is connected to the civil rights movement, is connected to the urban rebellions, right? Different forms of um, crisis and how that shapes, right, these different policies and who gets access to these policies. So, so yeah, I'll say that about it. Um, hopefully it can be helpful to people that are interested in those questions. Hopefully it can be helpful for people 
that are interested in studying the tactics and strategies of the right. Um, and yeah, I really hope that I hope that not just education scholars read this. I really, really am happy that most of the feedback that I've received has been from education scholars. But I think it's really important that people that are interested in politics and movements also read the book as well. Right, absolutely. And as you said, even though it may not be a rosy picture, it is a, a accurate picture, and. It's always helpful to be accurate and to tell the truth about what's going on because nothing positive could ever come from not knowing, you know, what, what the actual current or, you know, historical situation uh, is or was. Um, so, okay, last question. Uh, could you tell us about a new project you're currently working on? For sure. Um, I'm working on my next book project, um, which... It's, it's very different. It's not an education. I think most people think that my next book would be related to education. This one is not. Um, <laughs> this uh, this um, next book project concerns uh, community organizing and Black social life during the urban crisis um, in central Brooklyn. Um, so I'm looking at Black communities in central Brooklyn and the ways in which the state sort of disappears, um, you know, and the ways that people came together to to meet their needs and to build community institutions and, um, you know, to, you know, build forms of cultural um, production and, you know, a variety of things, how they aim to, um, you know, protect themselves, resist police brutality, resist forms of violence. Um, so it's still very much in the early stages. The book is not coming out anytime soon, um, <laughs> but I've been doing a lot of um, research over the years um, related to this a qualitative research project. I've been doing oral histories with um, neighborhood residents for many years now um, related to this, and I've done extensive archival research. And so I'm really just interested in how Black people um, in particular and Black communities responded to um, state disinvestment, um, particularly during the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, and so that's what my next project is, still related to movements, um, but also just dealing more so with um, uh, urban sociology, uh, Black communities. It's also, I think, is more a more interdisciplinary project. So um, I'm really enjoying working on it. That's wonderful. Well, it sounds like a, another fascinating project. Um, well, thank you, Amaka, uh, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.